Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here. This is Authentic Biochemistry Studios and podcast, of course. Of course, the podcast is on air and the studios are right here in the Inland Pacific Northwest, where they have been for some time ongoing. Now, I'm going to be doing another diabetes lecture. So if you tuned in here to learn about uh, rock music videos, or let's say Shakespeare's tragedies, it's not going to happen. And if you want to go listen to those things, that's fine, but you will not get the kind of excellent education that you will listening to authentic biochemistry. So here we go. Now, I want to remind you of something I finished last time. I did a couple of um, video lectures, basically just going through some of the pathophysiology of diabetes. But I want to remind you that there was a paper we had just covered that was a longitudinal uh, cohort study that demonstrated dementia being a major risk comorbidity. The younger the cohort population were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. We talked uh, some length about the central nervous system and how it's impacted by dyslipidemia, including neuroinflammation. We've talked about this several times. I've published on it as well, both on papers discussing autism spectrum disorder and on general anxiety disorder. Maybe we'll cover some of that um, in a subsequent lecture. But today, I want to deal with a new paper, if we can. And it is published in eBiomedicine. And it was, it's actually about seven years, well, six and a half years old. And this is where I want to um, lead off into a lot of other interesting discussions here about um, Central nervous system disorders associated with metabolic disorders that are linked to obesity. So we know that white matter degeneration, now white matter, of course, is going to be myelinated axons. And you remember that myelin is sphingomyelin, which is a specific lipid. We talked a lot about lipid degeneration in association with neuronal uh, pathologies. So white mat. So we're right up where we have talked many times before. So um, sphingolipid degeneration is a pathological um, association in many neurodegenerative diseases. And of course, we think about multiple sclerosis being sort of the um, primary one that gets uh, well studied in the literature. But Alzheimer's is also uh, a good example of that. And so that means that age is associated with this essentially demyelination and degeneration. So because of that, age is a risk factor for AD. We all know this because I've, for one thing, I've been lecturing on it for quite a time. Now, the prevalence of late onset AD is actually greatest in the female population as opposed to the male. So when males get AD pathology and presentation, it's when they're younger and they carry it forward at 
a more accelerated rate and they tend to die from their disease earlier. Females tend to get AD type of pathology and behavioral characteristics later in life. This can be between five and 10 years after men on average. And it can last a lot longer and the descent into high morbidity and ultimately mortality is much slower. So obviously there's a distinction between male and female neurodegeneration. So this particular paper was looking at white matter degeneration and in an animal model. um, So I'm going to put a big caveat on this work because I told you that anytime you think about uh, other mammals being studied for a neuropsychiatric disorder, you're going to have major issues with really being able to interpret what we we mean by the behavioral presentation, right? Now, there are pretty good animal models for these diseases at the uh, histopathophysiological level. And even I almost would argue at the pathobiochemical level, but I'm not as convinced of the latter. I'll just say that. So (laughs) when you look at the animal models and how sex can be linked to the risk of Alzheimer's. What it shows is that there is a decline in mitochondrial linked electron transport and the consumption of molecular oxygen and production of ATP. And what that is linked to, this is in females now, an increase in H2O2 or hydrogen peroxide production which then signals through the phospholipase A2 sphingomyelinase pathway of activation that ultimately links up as neurodegeneration in the aging female brain. EM and lipidomic analyses have been uh, used, and obviously it is indeed sphingomyelin degeneration. So what that means is you get an increase in free fatty acids and then mitochondrial fatty acid beta oxidation. And from that, you get ketone bodies generated and they find, they show up, yeah, in the plasma. Now that means that ketone bodies can be directly used by the central nervous system. If this is happening in the periphery, right? Now you will recall, uh, and if not, I'm going to remind you in a few moments, that you can also get fatty acid oxidation and ketogenesis in the CNS, okay? So the mechanism and the chronology of this utilization of fatty acids and the production of reactive oxygen species like hydrogen peroxide, which can lead to further oxidative damage, leading to higher levels than of the neurodegeneration component of Alzheimer's disease seems to be able to hook up mitochondrial dysfunction with aging, with the white matter degeneration, and with ultimately then uh, Alzheimer's disease. Now, this is found in males and females, but I'm telling you that in females, there seems to be this later onset accumulation of reactive oxygen and also the switching to beta oxidation of fatty acids and ketogenesis than in the male uh, form of Alzheimer's disease progression. It's the same disease, but when I say the main form, I mean the rate of disease progression and also 
uh, in particular the pathobiochemistry, okay? Whereas the behavior responses, neuropsychiatric conditions uh, really are difficult to separate out. But when you get catabolism, sphingolipids, that are linked as the myelin sheath on axons in the central nervous system, um, this is normally occurring if it's not otherwise a disease such as MS later in life. And the catabolism of these myelin, uh, sphingomyelin uh, molecules actually is associated with ketogenesis. And that's what I want to talk about today because it ba basically you can see this is like a, an adapt, a, a pathological adaptation of the central nervous system to maintain bioenergetics. Okay. So again, you see this in Alzheimer's, but you also sometimes um, hear about it in MS patients. But this MS is a totally different uh, community of patients that, that uh, acquire that disease. They can acquire it at a much younger age. But the concept of fatty acid oxidation and ketogenesis in the brain is one to keep in mind because you're going to find out right now that the ketogenesis is associated with myelin degeneration. So <clears throat> consider that you have an astrocyte. And the astrocytes, of course, are going to be those cells in the central nervous system that are going to be required for sphingomyelin biosynthesis and therefore the myelination of specific axons linked to neurons, which may eventually go through neurodegeneration. So you get <laughs> sphingomyelinase activation. So sphingomyelin is broken down by an enzyme called sphingomyelinase. Remember, we talked about this. There are acidic and neutral forms of that enzyme, and they're expressed differentially in different tissues. Right now, I'll just say generically, a sphingomyelinase will generate ceramide, and ceramide will then be converted to free fatty acids in sphingosine by the enzyme ceraminidase. Those fatty acids, if this is occurring again uh, in uh, the astrocyte, they can be metabolized via beta oxidation. And beta oxidation generates, among other things, reactive oxygen. This way you can pick up H2O2, which can then also trigger the cytoplasmic phospholipase A2. Now, phospholipase A2 will generate more fatty acids. So you're getting fatty acids from two components in the astrocyte. And we're still in the astrocyte. We haven't moved to the neuron yet. So all of that fatty acid is, that's produced from either sphingomyelinase or from phospholipase A2 will be beta-oxidized in the astrocyte to acetyl-CoA. And then the acetyl-CoA will be used in the pathway of ketogenesis to make acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. Those are the ketone bodies or ketone molecules. There is a... Uh, monocarboxylic acid transporter that will transport acetoacetate beta hydroxybutyrate from the astrocyte. And the similar transporter located on the membrane of the neuron will take up those ketone bodies where they will be utilized as an energy source. There you'll get ketolysis and the series of reactions, including one linked to succinyl-CoA, 
will ultimately yield acetyl-CoA, and acetyl-CoA then can be used directly um, in one of two ways. It can combine with oxalacetic acid and make citrate. That citrate then can be oxidized through the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And when that happens, NAD and FAD are reduced to their NADH, FADH2 forms. And then those two nucleotides will be oxidized in the electron transport chain using the four complexes of that intermitochondrial embedded uh, membrane-associated pathway, utilizing things like quinone and using cytochrome, cytochrome B5 reductase, as well as the NADH oxidase, which is complex one. This is also where you continue to derive reactive oxygen because any slowing down of the electron transport chain by an overloading of reduced NAD and FAD will yield partially reduced forms of molecular oxygen. And these include things like superoxide, hydroxyl anion in the worst case scenario, but also H2O2. So what you get then is, so the other use of acetyl-CoA, of course, can be to acetylate histones and nucleotides in chromatin that is being activated via retailering to induce the expression of specific genes in that neuron. Now, many of the genes that are expressed in neurons are going to be those that produce neurotransmitters. So you can see how this ketogenic switch is causing multiple avenues of potential pathobiochemistry. One is the reactive oxygen. One that I haven't mentioned, but I will right now, is reactive oxygen inducing hydroperoxy fatty acid synthesis and also oxysterol synthesis, which are themselves triggers for the production of eicosanoids. And eicosanoids can trigger an inflammatory response, ultimately yielding the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-1-beta, which is known to be produced both in astrocytes and in neurons. So now you've got a fully florid inflammatory response in the central nervous system, which can then trigger the microglia, which are, of course, the resident macrophages in the CNS, to embellish that reactive oxygen species production. Icosanoids, remember those are oxygenated fatty acids, uh, such as the prostaglandins and uh, the leukotrienes, depending on whether or not they're going through the cyclooxygenase or lipoxygenase pathways. And those are actually triggers for uh, transcriptional control over the expression of the glycoproteins known as cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and matrix metalloproteases, all of which can yield a much higher level of inflammation in the central nervous system. And then you're on your way to neurodegeneration, right? So that acetyl-CoA that gets used for the epigenetic modification expression of those genes plays a major role in causing a higher morbidity at a higher rate. And so you don't get a consistent epigenetic alteration during the early prodromal phases of neurodegeneration, but you do get more acetylation from the acetyl-CoA that's left over 
from otherwise condensing with OAA and running through the TCA cycle, making NADH and FADH2 for the reoxidation of the electron transport chain to make ATP. Because remember, the goal of the neuron is to have adequate amounts of ATP because the neuronal tissue is a tremendous amount of ATP because bioenergetics is the key to amplification of neurotransmission, right? And that's ultimately what yields, what, what brings about this pathology. So now you get kind of like the idea where we're at, right? So that was paper in 2015. That kind of led uh, me into reading a lot of other papers in the last several years since then, actually. And this paper was published, what I'm looking at right now, was published in 2021. And it's in Alzheimer's and Dementia, Translational Research and Clinical Interventions, or TRCI. And I'll put this in the show notes. Once again, this paper reminds us that white matter undergoes an axonal degeneration. And this is a process of sphingomyelin uh, demyelination. And you see this in diseases like AD. So white matter microcrystalline structural deterioration is also found in specific brain nuclei when you get mild cognitive impairment after such things as ischemic stroke, which of course is also going to induce a pro-inflammatory response linked to oxidative metabolism. That's why those two chemistries, those two biochemistries are the same. So the two tissue degeneration modes and uh, ultimate production of free fatty acid for this whole switch from using glucose to using fatty acids are linked even then those kind of uh, quite different uh, neuropathologies, that is stroke versus neurodegenerative disease late onset. But you see where you can still pick up the same pathobiochemistry. I like to bring that up because so often you see where there's a crossroads or what I call an axis where multiple diseases are actually linked at the biochemical level. And even sometimes the triggers that induce the pathobiochemistry are, are in common. Okay? Not always, but often, right? So that cognitive decline is really important in Alzheimer's disease. And we're all really aware of that. So white matter becomes the uh, bioenergetic source that's necessary for all of this neurotransmitter function, uh, or you can call it axonal function. And this means that the oligodendrocytes are essential for providing that bioenergetic source. And that's going to be fatty acids from the sphingomyelinase and the phospholipase activity. And then I just explained to you how that then yields beta oxidation. You get NADH and FADH2 from that, and you're on your way, once again, to causing reactive oxygen species buildup, glycosinoid production, hydroxy and hydroperoxy fatty acids, et cetera, et cetera. So you get a gradual brain switch from glucose utilization which usually runs through the IGF pathway, the insulin growth factor one pathway, and not insulin itself. So you start generating a glucose deficit in the CNS. And that is actually very common during healthy aging. More and more lipid is used as brains age. Now, there has been some arguments about why that might occur, 
because that is the beginning of the end for the central nervous system. As soon as you start demyelinating, you're going to start losing higher brain function. And so this is what we know happens in advanced aging, right? You, you lose motor skills, you lose cognitive skills, then you get frank degeneration, and that frank degeneration then uh, ultimately leads in the uh, death, right? So you might argue, well, why would there be a normal, what I'm calling healthy process of aging that would involve demyelination? And I want to remind you that sphingomyelin is a highly reactive lipid. Remember what I've said about ceramide and ceramide phosphate versus sphingosine and sphingosine 1-phosphate. Now, ceramide itself is a molecule that causes membrane lipid raft mobilization of receptors to and from the endomembranous system to the plasma membrane. And many of these receptors are linked to voltage-gated channels. And these voltage-gated channels are the ones that induce the polarization of the membrane, which derives the action potential for neurotransmission. Right? So what the myelin sheath does is it prevents the stray electrical current from moving out of that axonal membrane because there's a lot of electrical discharge, of course. You get, you know, you get chemical and you get bioelectric neural transmission. So the, the myelin sheath protects that. But at the same time, because of the amount of reactive oxygen generated because of the free electrons that are flowing through that system during normal neurotransmission over time, like late onset as a person ages, that white matter degrades more and more. And the astrocyte, like all cells in the body, lose their uh, biosynthetic anabolic capability as they age because of problems with telomere shortening and all the things we talked about in that year of discussion of aging, right? And so the brain is also aging. And so what that means is that it could well be a protective measure to remove some of that sphingomyelin because it would be the source of reactive oxygen generating hydroperoxy fatty acids, which would corrupt the membrane at one level. And the other would be the normal uh, turnover of sphingomyelin, which has to happen be particularly because of the high levels of very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, such as the um, docosahexaenoic and icosapentaenoic acids, which are known to be highly enriched in the central nervous system as compared to anywhere else in the body. When you have all those double bonds, um, as particularly of the um, uh, where the double bonds are closer to the methyl terminus, that's, that would of course be the omega-3 fatty acids, which is highly enriched in that central nervous system membranous fraction you're going to get a great deal of corruption of the membrane when you start getting auto-oxidation. And if you get massive corruption of the membrane, not only will you get misfiring and therefore uh, inappropriate neurotransmission, you're going to get cognitive decline, you're going to get co cognitive execution, as well as motor skill execution at a very early stage, unless that myelin sheath is turned over. So that means there is a process of sphingomyelinase activity and phospholipase activity, which is a built-in defensive buffer. But when that defensive buffer breaking down the myelin sheath is not compensated for 
via de novo synthesis of the myelin sheath, via the uh, sphingolipid biosynthetic anabolic pathways, as I say, become degraded over time. Then you have then the unfortunate source of fatty acids for producing reactive oxygen icosinodes, hydro and hydroperoxy fatty acids, and again, on the way to neurodegeneration. You also are generating ceramide, and ceramide will induce programmed cell death. So not only does it act as a major component of membrane lipid rafts, moving cholesterol back and forth, but also all those proteins, which, such as the voltage-gated channels, et cetera, that are required for polarization of the neural membrane. But you are also getting, right, ceramide-inducing classical PCD, programmed cell death. And when that occurs, you're going to get neurodegeneration. The first type of neurodegeneration would be apoptosis, which would not induce a further inflammatory response because the DNA and all of the molecules that are inside that cell that is going through uh, apoptotic program cell death will not release their content to any significant degree, degree. It's almost like an autophagic response in the end. Everything is consumed. And then the macrophages that are in the CNS, the microglia, will go ahead and clean that cell up so it won't induce a, a fractionation of all of that polypeptide and lipid and carbohydrate and nucleic acid that would spill out of a dying cell if it was going through something like necrosis. But you, after a while, the apoptotic signaling, because it requires a lot of ATP, and it also requires a really abundant anabolic pathway because it does consume a fair amount of energy, it is replaced just like the um, anabolism is replaced by catabolism for the sphingomyelin pathways. It is replaced by necrotosis, ferritosis, because there's plenty of iron in the brain because of all the mitochondria, because of all the need for cytochrome-mediated oxidation of NADH and FADH2 and electron transport chain. Um, so what you get when you get ferritosis and necrotosis, that's the kind of program cell death that will induce a super inflammatory response. Then you're on your way to having a, an inflamed central nervous system which would degenerate much more rapidly if there wasn't this turnover of the sphingomyelin. So that's my reasoning using my understanding of biochemistry and physiology and also neuroscience to put together why it makes some logical biochemical sense to turn over that sphingomyelin in the central nervous system. Okay. So you get, uh, and reminding you again, you get this gradual brain glucose deficit as you age. And so you're switching already to more lipid. And you know that fatty acids by themselves don't circulate. They have to be bound to either serum albumin or to lipoproteins. And both serum albumin and lipoproteins can make it past the blood-brain barrier, but they had a great deficiency in terms of molar transport. So most of what actually crossed the blood-brain barrier is after that BBB is starting to degrade itself because of aging. And then, of course, what that leads to is more lipid mobilization, more potential for reactive oxygen production, but also a lot of bioenergetics during that transition period. Okay. But ultimately what happens is you're losing myelin, you're getting the corruption of network electrical and chemical connectivity and therefore neurotransmission is becoming corrupted right, and slowed down both at the level of uh, motor skills and uh, psychiatric skills 
Now, what this leads to when you get a lot of beta oxidation uh, of fatty acids and then ketogenesis, you make ketone bodies. So you've got acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. And of course, those are going to be an alternate energy source instead of glucose for the brain. And so this is where I'm going to leave you because I want you to get the idea now why there is this pathology, um, what the pathology will induce, which is neurodegeneration. Now, the next time I do a lecture, I'm going to bring in how diabetes in association with obesity will bring that on at an earlier age. And that's how it links back up to the last lectures on how type 2 uh, diabetes is linked to earlier and earlier progression, presentation, and debilitation from dementia in humans. So... Hopefully I got that uh, key information distributed pretty well in this last 30 minutes because I really wanted to bring home a lot of concepts, but also I wanted to give you all the biochemical players. I think I did a reasonably good job. And I don't think that this kind of lecture really requires me to do it in video form because uh, you don't need to know what the structures look like right now. I've showed them to you before, but I, of course, will do uh, my dialectical event ontological recording of this whole diabetic system when I'm ready to wrap up this uh, arc of uh, lectures. And so this is going to be the longest of the arc we've been doing this diabetic one, because it's so important in human health, particularly in the 21st century. And so with that, I'm going to stop and I promise you, I, you'll hear another audio lecture very soon uh, on this exact same topic, neurodegeneration, obesity, and T2D coming uh, from the audio um, authentic biochemistry feed rather than from the video and uh, probably two or three like this. And then we'll, we'll finish up with a, another good video lecture. Okay. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 17th, say happy St. Patrick's Day uh, of March, 2022, saying bye for now.